We have several guests who are here, some of you I met on the way in, but if I didn't get a chance to meet you, my name is Bill, and it's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at the table. And so if you are a guest, we would love to connect with you. There are a couple of ways to do that. The first method is kind of the old school method. So on your way in, hopefully you received one of our cards. On one side is a uh, connection card. You can fill that out during the service. You can do it during the message. It just looks like you're taking notes, and so it's totally fine. And then after the service this morning, you can take it um, and drop it in one of our give boxes in the back of the room um, next to the doors on your way out, or you can take it back to our information table. Or the other way to connect with us is uh, by texting the word WELCOME to 817-755-1668, and you'll receive the same thing in a digital format. Um, but we, we'd love to know who you are, how we can serve you and your family. So I want to let you know what you're getting yourself into when you fill out that connection card. You're just going to receive an email from me, um, likely tomorrow, um, to just begin to build a relationship with you. And if there's anything that we can do, um, please let us know. Also, at the same time, if you are new or newer with us and you have questions about the church or questions about anything that you hear this morning, I will be available and would love to um, chat with you for a few minutes after the service. So I'll, I'll kind of hang out um, next to our information table. Um, so that's where I'm going to be. I'd love to, to visit with you for a couple of minutes. So that's one side of that card. On the other side is all about Easter. Um, and so Cody, at the end of the service this morning, is going to kind of talk to us about what's happening with Easter and invite us to that. And so hopefully you're thinking about that, thinking about who you can invite to come with you on Easter. Um, But the thing that I want to make sure that you guys are all aware of is that this Easter we are planning to do some baptisms, right? What greater way to celebrate the resurrection than through celebrating new life in Jesus? And so we've already got some folks that are lined up to be baptized on Easter Sunday. But if you have never been baptized and you want to take that step of faith to say publicly that you're a follower of Jesus, we would love to talk with you about that and get you lined up to participate um, with us on Easter Sunday. So I think that's all the introductory material for today. Hopefully you guys are planning um, to either stay or come back for a picnic today. Um, So we've got that happening. Let me pray for us and then we'll get into the message. Father, thanks so much for your love and your grace. I pray that you would uh, challenge us today, that you would be our teacher, help me to communicate clearly um, this morning, and that the things that I say would be things that are from you. Um, God, we recognize our dependence upon you today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So when I was a kid, each year, a few weeks before Christmas, my grandmother would take my sisters and me shopping to buy presents for my parents. And and so we used our own money. So as a result of that, the gifts that we purchased weren't extravagant in any way. Because the only money that we had was money that we saved from our allowances or maybe proceeds from a garage sale that we had had that summer or whatever. But my grandmother was really good. She helped us to make sure we had the right amounts of money and got to the right stores so that we could buy the things for our parents that we wanted to buy them. And I should tell you this too. So our family is very practical in our gift giving. We would always, and we still do, we make lists for Christmas so that we don't have to guess what each other wants. And much of the, most of the stuff that we would put on our Christmas list are very, very practical and useful. Now, I know not every family is that way. Not every family does what we do. Sometimes you give something that 
nobody would ever think about getting themselves, but that's not what we did. We were very practical in our gift giving. Now, as a kid, I put lots of toys on my Christmas list, but somehow my parents taught us not to put things that were too expensive. So everything that we ever put on our Christmas list was within reason. My parents were the same way. So very practical in what they put on their Christmas list. And especially when we were young, they would put things on their list that we could afford so that we, were, we felt like we were getting them something that they really wanted and then something that they could use. So with my dad, we often got my dad tools. Now, I do remember there were several years in a row that my sister got my dad turtle wax so he could wax the car. This is something that she got for him. But I remember specifically one year, I got my dad a, a screwdriver. This is the first time that I'd ever seen a screwdriver like this. It was one that had magnetic uh, bits, and then they were interchangeable, and those bits were kept in the, the handle of the screwdriver. So they had a, a top that you could unscrew, so you could have a pointier Phillips head or a larger flat head or whatever. And so one year I gave that to my dad for Christmas. But we often got my dad tools. But those tools that we gave to my dad, they were given to my dad, but they weren't really for my dad. What I mean by that is that, yes, they were his tools, but the benefit of those tools was not solely for him. Because my dad would use the tools that we bought him to fix things around the house And our family would benefit from that. Or he would build things around the house with the tools that we gave to him and our family would benefit from that. So they were given to him, but they weren't necessarily for him. As we got a little bit older and started to get a little bit more money, even moved out of the house, my dad would still continue to put tools on his Christmas list. And so even as we got older, uh, we would purchase my dad tools. Or if it wasn't my sisters and me that were doing it, it was my grandparents that were doing it. Both sets of grandparents often would buy my dad tools for Christmas. And so even as we were older and those tools got a little bit more expensive, they were given to my dad, but they were not for my dad because he continued to use them for the benefit of our family. And then when my dad retired from his job, The benefit of those tools began, the focus of the benefit shifted outward so that it was primarily for other people. Because when my dad retired, he started a handyman business. Business only in the legal sense of the term, because really what my dad did was he started a a ministry. Because what my dad wanted to do was work for widows, elderly folks, people on fixed incomes. He wasn't interested at all in making money. His goal was at the end of the year to just break even, making sure that his uh, costs were taken care of. And so all of these things that we had given to my dad over the years, the focus of the benefit shifted outward to other people, given to him, but not really for him. If you would say that you're a follower of Jesus, we have been given something that I think has been given to us but is not for us. We've been given the gift of our faith, our relationship with God, and all that goes with it. It's been given to us. I don't really think it's completely for us. It's interesting. We even read this language in Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it's by grace that we're saved through faith. It is a gift from God. So our salvation, our relationship with God... Our eternal life, it's a gift that's given to us, 
but I don't believe it's only for us. And what I mean by that is if we are the sole beneficiary of this gift of faith that God has given to us, this salvation that God has given to us, we are missing the boat to us, but not for us. What I'm talking about today, I think, is something that honestly, it's a message that I don't believe is very popular. But yet at the same time, I think if we understand and embrace the reality of this, it's absolutely transformative. I want you to think about this. What is the fundamental problem that each of us face? I believe that the fundamental problem that all of us have is a problem with selfishness or self-centeredness. At the root of all of our problems, or at the very least most of our problems, what we would find is self. Think about this. If you have marital problems, probably at the core of that, at the root of that problem, is a problem with self. One spouse is saying, hey, you are not meeting my expectations. You are not doing for me what I think you ought to do for me. If you have financial problems, likely at the core of that is a problem with self. Because the thought is, well, I want more. I deserve more. I'm going to get more because I deserve more even though I can't afford more. It's a problem with me. Pride. It's clearly at the core of that, it's a problem with self. If you have a problem with jealousy, right? that is the wanting something that somebody else has or thinking that you deserve something that somebody else has, ultimately it's a problem with self. Gossip. It's talking about other people's issues all the time so that I feel better about my own. It's a problem with self. So I think you understand where I'm headed with all of that, but think about what is the predominant message that we hear in churches today. God loves you. God wants to change your life. God wants to bring healing in your life. God wants to bring reconciliation in your relationships. Uh, God loves you. He's patient with you. And in the midst of your doubts and fears, in the midst of your anxieties, he meets you where you are and he's always there for you. I want to be careful because I think all of those things are true. God wants to change our lives. He, He wants to bring reconciliation in relationships that are broken. He wants to allow freedom in our lives. He's he's done all kinds of things for us, but if that's all we ever hear, all of the things that God has done for us, it doesn't actually solve the fundamental problem that we have. And so if all we ever hear is what God wants to do for us and what God has done for us, then we're left thinking, and I think it's only subconscious, nobody is consciously thinking this way, but we're left thinking, at the center of my faith is me. What if it's not just given, it's given to us, but what if it's not for us? 
Because what if the, what God wants to do for us is actually about solving the fundamental problem that we have? Think about how this changes things. So as we begin to think about problems in our marriage, it's not God fix my marriage so that it does for me what I want it to do for me, but it's God strip me of myself so that I don't have these unrealistic expectations of my spouse anymore so that I can love them unconditionally. Or if it's the issue of, of jealousy, God help me to not be so concerned about what I don't have, but to trust in you with what I do have so that I can rejoice with those who rejoice. Or God help me to not be so concerned about other people but let me to, help me to trust in you so that I don't talk about other people and their problems anymore. It's given to us, but it's not really for us. Now, all of that is the introduction to the message. I'm actually not even done with the introduction yet, but I feel like at this point I need to tell you that, yes, we are continuing our series, The Room Where It Happened, and we are looking at John chapter 14. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to the passage that we're going to look at in just a second. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 26. That's where we're going to be this morning, John 14, 15 through 26. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen. When I read it here in just a couple of minutes, because i got something else I'm going to tell you first, um, or if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can follow along there. But before I read this, I want to tell you about the experience that I had with this passage that I am going to read in just a second. Because several weeks ago, when I began to prepare for this morning's message, going through the process that I always go through... At the end of that process, I start to sketch out an outline for how I'm going to shape the, the talk for uh, that given Sunday. I got to the end of that process, and I thought to myself, I have no idea what this passage is about. So I went into our staff meeting the next day, and I read the passage, which I'll read in just a second, and I said to our staff, what is this about? And everybody just kind of stared at me. Cody, who was sitting next to me, leaned over and said, hey, you should probably tell them why you're asking this question. And so I told them, I said, hey, I spent all day yesterday working through this passage, and here is as far as I have gotten. And I held up what at that point was a pretty blank sheet of paper. And I told them what I really wanted to do today was call this message when Shakespeare goes to church. Because I don't know if you remember reading Shakespeare, if you ever had to do that. You know, when you read Shakespeare, you know what all of the individual words mean. But somehow when you put them together, you can read a section and have no idea what it's talking about. That's how I felt about this passage of Scripture. I hope, though, that what I'm able to do for you is give you the Cliff Notes version. And I don't say that because I'm going to water things down or anything. When I was in college, I had a British literature class, and the only reason that I understood anything that we were doing in that class is because I got the cliff notes. I read the cliff notes, and I was like, oh, this makes much more sense than the original. I hope that that's what you walk away with today, not being confused about this passage like I was originally, but you're like, hey, I don't understand. Why was that so hard? That's what we're going to do this morning. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 26. Let me read it. If you love me... You will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, 
But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how, do, how is it that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it's from the Father who sent me. I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. I think the primary purpose of what Jesus was saying in this text is that we have something that has been given to us, but it's not for us. Let me reset the stage. The disciples are in the upper room, the room where it happened. And as they entered into the upper room, Jesus confronts in the disciples a fundamental flaw that they had. Because at this point, their focus in their relationship with Jesus is what it's going to do for them. They'd argued about who was the greatest. And so Jesus got down on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples. And he said, as I have done this for you, you need to do this for others. Later on, as they were gathered together, Jesus predicted his death and his betrayal. He said one of them would betray him. And we know that to be Judas Iscariot. Why did Judas agree to do what he did? It is because he came to the conclusion that his relationship with Jesus was not going to give to him what he thought it was going to give to him. And so Jesus began to comfort the disciples. We talked about this last week at the beginning of John chapter 14. He said he was going away, but he was coming back so that they could be with him forever. And John chapter 14 and verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. We talked about this last week. It's strange that Jesus said that, don't be afraid, because they had every reason to be afraid at that moment. Their world was getting ready to be turned upside down. But in the midst of that, Jesus had to comfort his disciples. And so he said that he wasn't going to leave them alone, but that a counselor would come. And if we are not careful, and we don't pay attention to the details, we can look at that and say, look at this promise that Jesus gave to the disciples and look at what Jesus has done for us. It is incredible. I think it was given to them, but it was not for them. The Spirit given to us, but is not for us. I want to show you why I believe that that is the focus of what Jesus is saying through a series of observations from the text. I'm just going to explain them, um, but that's what we're going to do. First observation is this. To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. Verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. It's actually not 
the only time that Jesus said this, in fact, he even says it later on a couple of different occasions, to love Jesus is to obey Jesus. And we can really look at it as a definition. That's what it means to love Jesus. It's to obey Jesus. And if you grew up like I did, you know exactly what that means. It means that there's a bunch of stuff that you cannot do. You cannot cuss, drink, smoke, dance, go to parties, hang out with the wrong people, certainly can't go to bars. And if you're confused about how Applebee's fits into that, yes, there is a very strict definition of what a bar is. It's based on the percentage of alcohol sales versus food sales. has to do with the square foot of the bar versus the square foot of the eating area. If you're confused by any of that, come talk to me after the service. I can give you all of the regulations so that you know exactly where you are not allowed to go. But that's what we think. We think that there must be a long list of things that we cannot do, and we do not do those things that leads to a better life. Here's the problem. Jesus never said any of those things. Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on two things. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's insert that into verse 15. If you love me, you will love God, and you'll love people. Now, let me ask you this. What does it mean to love God? Or what do you do if you love God? Now, likely, you're thinking in terms of acts of devotion. That if you love God, you're going to spend time with God. You're going to read your Bible. You're going to pray. You're going to worship God. Now, don't misunderstand me. All of those things are important. But Jesus was critical of the religious leaders of his day, not because they didn't worship in the right way. They did. They did everything the right way, followed all the right rules, did it in the right way, but yet they did not love people. So our love for God is always manifested outwardly in terms of how we relate to other people. To love God, to love Jesus, is to obey Jesus, which is loving God and loving people and loving God always manifests itself outwardly. That's observation number one. To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. Number two, the Spirit helps us to do what we have been commanded to do. Verse 15, again, if you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, it's a really important word, another counselor to be with you forever. He's the Spirit of truth. And likely, when we read that, we think, oh man, that's great. We receive a counselor, maybe thinking like psychologists, that type of counselor. And so it's great. Listen to this gift that Jesus gives to us. It's somebody who comforts us when we're down, who helps us when we need help, somebody who's always there with us. Look at this promise that Jesus has given to us. I think Jesus gave us the promise of the Spirit. He gave it to us, but the Spirit is not for us. And let me tell you why. It's two things. First, it's that word another. So Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. Meaning they already had one. And the word another is another of the same kind. So you already have one, and this other one that's going to come is going to do the same things that your other one was doing. Now, who's the other one? It's Jesus. And that word counselor is actually a legal term. It's like legal advocate. 
And so, yes, the Holy Spirit comes to help us to know what to do and give us guidance, come alongside of us. Yes, the Spirit does that, but we can't remove it from the context of what Jesus had just said. Because he said, if you love me, you will obey me, and I will send a counselor. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us to do what Jesus has commanded us to do. And the reason that we need that help is because it is unnatural for us to do what Jesus commanded us to do. It is completely unnatural for us to love people in the way that Jesus commanded us to love people. Because what is natural for us is to think, look at all the things that God has done for me. Look at the blessings that God has given to me. And we live in the promises that God has for us. And we do that while treating other people terribly and completely missing the point of what Jesus wants to do in our lives. So the Spirit is given to us. It's not for us. Third observation is this. We reveal Jesus to the world as we obey Jesus. Okay, this we got to keep going. This is where it gets a little bit confusing. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live too. And I think we can kind of understand that part a little bit. Jesus' death and resurrection so the disciples wouldn't see him, but after the resurrection, they would see him again, and the world wouldn't see him. So we kind of understand that part. But then we get to verse 20. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And we say, what? We go back and read that again, and we say, on that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Okay, here is the short version of what I believe that Jesus is communicating there. He is saying that the plan of God is going to be carried out so that we will be brought into conformity with Jesus. So our character will be just like Jesus. I think that's what he's saying there. And in verse 21, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the is one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and reveal myself to him. Now, as I picture the conversation between Jesus and the disciples, I mean, at this point, I think the disciples are just scratching their head, having no idea what Jesus has just talked about. I mean, if they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about when he said, I go to prepare a place for you, there is no way they understand what Jesus is talking about now. But there is something in there that they could grab hold of. It was the part at the end When Jesus said, I will reveal myself to them, meaning I will show them to be exactly who I am. And so it's Judas, not that one, the different one, said, Jesus, why don't you reveal yourself to the world? Why do you just reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And in response to that, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Now, If you read that, you ought to think to yourself, that is a weird answer to that question. Because the question was not, hey, Jesus, I don't really understand what you're talking about. Can you explain to me what it is that you're saying? The question was not, Jesus, help us to understand what we're supposed to do in light of what you said. It was, Jesus, why don't you reveal yourself to the world? Let me interpret Jesus' answer for us. I believe that what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to reveal myself to the world because that's your job. We 
are to reveal Jesus to the world. As we obey Jesus, which is loving people, so it's that outward flow of our relationship with God, we reveal Jesus to the world through our interactions with and actions toward other people. Now let me ask you, what are you revealing about Jesus with your life? We've talked about it recently. What do the studies show? Non-believers, what is their opinion about believers? What do they think about when they think about Christians? They think judgmental, hypocritical, too political, angry, all of the other things. Now I want you to think about this. Jesus came to reveal the Father. We actually read that it's in, towards the, a couple of verses after where we left off last week because Philip said, Jesus, just show us the Father and that's enough. And Jesus' response to that was, if you know me, you also know my Father. Jesus came to reveal the Father and we reveal Jesus. So how do people view God? How often do people think that God is the vindictive man upstairs who is just looking down on us, waiting until we mess up because then he gets to punish us? Maybe the reason that people think that about God is because that is who we have revealed him to be. Because we reveal Jesus to the world as we obey Jesus. Last observation is this. The Spirit teaches us how to do what Jesus taught us to do. Verse 25, I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So the Spirit teaches us to do what Jesus taught us to do. At this point, Jesus says to the disciples, hey, the Spirit's going to come, and all of these things are going to make sense. Because I think at this point, the disciples, they're missing a lot, honestly. They're confused about a lot because they're still thinking, hey, what's in it for me? And I believe that the fundamental promise of the Holy Spirit here was to help the disciples put the pieces together so that it, they recognized it wasn't about them. Think about this. John, the author of the Gospel of John, this life story of Jesus, he also wrote the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, what we refer to those. Do you know that there is one word that could sum up the entire message of 1st John? And it is the word love. I believe, as John is thinking about this moment when Jesus says, hey, the Spirit's going to come. He's going to help make sense out of all of this stuff. He's going to remind you of all the things that I've taught you. He's going to help you put the pieces together. It's John saying, I get it. The Holy Spirit helped me put the pieces together. And all of the pieces put together, that's First John. How to love God and love others. It's the Spirit who helps us to do what Jesus taught us to do. Now, understand this. 
God has done so much for us. He has rescued us, redeemed us, given us eternal life. He can radically change our hearts and change the circumstances of our lives. He gives us meaning and purpose. But all of those things that God has given to us, the sole benefit of those things cannot be just for us. Because fundamentally what God wants to do is fix the root cause of the problem, not just insert a different solution. He wants, us to help. he wants to help us understand that life is not about me. And it's the gift of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. This gift that has been given to us, but is not for us. It's a gift that helps us to love well, which is not about me. And I truly believe that that truth can radically change the way that we live. Will you pray with me?